it can't just be about what we're giving up. It has to be about what we're moving toward. And that's why I really like the kind of dopamine fast as a 30-day experiment. Because first of all, 30 days is something that most people can wrap their head around. I'm not going to stop drinking forever, but I could give it up for 30 days. Because for most people, 30 days is enough to begin to feel better. What's nice about that is that I no longer have to persuade them that there's a better alternative. Because a lot of times people in their addiction, they think I'm either miserable using my drug or I'm miserable without my drug. But no matter how you slice it, I'm miserable. What they cannot see is this third pathway that's a life of not using, that's a really good path with lots of joy and, as you say, lots of other things gained that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So we do a lot of coaching or psychoeducation around that, combined with actual behavioral interventions that allow people to begin to see that for themselves, as you were able to do when you initially felt better. And then after that kind of honeymoon period wears off, if it does, then people have to look deeper into purpose and meaning, making sure we don't frame giving up our drug of choice just as I can't have that thing that I like so much, but rather I'm giving myself something even better, right? I'm doing myself a favor. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last eight years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. If you're a regular listener, you may have noticed that I said eight years there instead of seven. Well, yes, we had our birthday. Tribe Sober is eight. And eight years ago, we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. You need to find a new tribe because social norms are so powerful. And that's why connecting with others on the same path will keep you on track and inspire you to keep going. At Tribe Sober, we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle and many of our members are already thriving in their alcohol-free lives and sticking with the tribe to inspire others. Each week we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. And what I was reading forced me to question my own behaviour because I could no longer pretend that this wasn't me also. I couldn't pretend that I wasn't the person also opening a bottle of wine, 
you know, not at seven o'clock in the evening with dinner, but potentially at three o'clock in the afternoon because I was already feeling the need to relax or unwind or take the edge off. By the time I found Tribe Sober, I had been reading blog posts and blog sites and websites. I had come across Club Soda. I had come across Hip Sobriety. Those were interesting. And I realized that there were conversations happening that benefited me, that could benefit me. And I decided there and then to start investigating. And so when I did decide to officially have my first day, my day one was the first day one. And it will be my last. That's my commitment to myself. I've had a day one and that's it. (laughs) I'm not going back there. But thank heavens, I came upon Tribe Sober, I think a week into quitting alcohol. And that has definitely made the difference. I would not have managed on my own. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest today is Dr. Anna Lemke, who is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford. She's also the author of a best-selling book called Dopamine Nation. I began by asking Dr. Anna to introduce herself. I live in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm here at Stanford University, where I'm on the faculty in the medical school. I'm a physician psychiatrist, and I'm medical director of addiction medicine here in our department. So your book, I really enjoyed it. And many people in our community have read your book as well. I wanted to ask you why you wrote the book. I think Dopamine Nation is the distillation of two decades of practicing psychiatry, primarily, especially in the latter half of my career, treating people with addiction, observing my own behaviors, and including what I've learned from my patients who have been able to get into recovery and how their recovery has informed my life for the better. And I just decided that there were things that I had learned that maybe other people could potentially benefit from. And that was one of the main drivers of writing the book. Plus, it's a side creative activity for me. Most of my work is very intensely people-oriented, which I love, but this was a solitary kind of contemplative mode that I could be in, which was really rewarding for me. Yeah, I'm sure it'll inform so many people and it's so easy to read, oh, unlike a lot of these yeah. scientific Thank books. you. That so was it's... my goal. So I appreciate it. Could you define dopamine for us and explain how it's involved in addiction, what role it plays? Yeah. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter and neurotransmitters are the molecules that bridge the gap between neurons in our brains to allow for finer tuning of the electrical circuits that make up who we are. Our brain consists of a bunch of different types of cells, but one of the main cells is these long spindly neurons uh, that don't touch end to end. There's a gap between them and that gap is called the synapse and it's bridged by chemicals called neurotransmitters, and dopamine is one of those. Dopamine is central to the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing substances and behaviors. The more dopamine that's released in that dedicated reward pathway of the brain, 
Uh, and the faster it's released, the more likely that substance is to be something that we will want to do again. Your seesaw, or teeter-totter, I think you call it in the States, it's brilliant, and it explains that so well. Can you talk about the pain-pleasure balance using this brilliant analogy? Sure, happy to do that. One of the very exciting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a seesaw or a balance. When we experience pleasure, that tips one way, pain, it tips the other. But there are three rules governing this balance. The first and most important rule is that the balance wants to remain level so that with any deviation from that neutral position, our brains are going to work very hard to restore a level balance. And that level balance position is called homeostasis. The question then becomes, how do our brains do that? And that's really important to understand in order to understand how it goes awry as we become addicted. So imagine, in my case, I'm eating a piece of chocolate. I love chocolate. That releases dope reasonably quickly in my brain's reward pathway, and that balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than my brain is going to counteract that increased dopamine transmission by downregulating dopamine transmission, for example, by involuting or pulling back on postsynaptic dopamine receptors. But the interesting thing is that my dopamine transition returns not just to that homeostatic baseline, because we're always releasing dopamine at a kind of tonic baseline level, but actually it goes below baseline. And I like to imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the hangover, the come down, the blue Monday, or in my case, that moment of wanting a second piece of chocolate, even hypothetically while I'm still finishing the first piece of chocolate, even slightly outside of my conscious awareness. Now, if I don't have another piece of chocolate, let's say there was only one piece, then eventually those gremlins get the memo, okay, we're not getting this exogenous source and our job is done and we can hop off the pain side of the balance and homeostasis will be restored and we'll go on our way. But as long as they are on the balance, I am likely to experience craving to ingest more of that substance or repeat that behavior because remember, one of the overarching drives is to restore a level balance and homeostasis. And if I can do that faster, at least in that initial exposure by ingesting more or doing the behavior again, I will probably do that because that's a very strong physiologic drive that dominates much of living organisms. But again, if I don't, the gremlins hop off, homeostasis is restored. But what if I do? What if instead of just one piece of chocolate, I've got a whole box of chocolates and I continue to ingest more and more dopamine over more and more chocolate over days to weeks to months to years? Those gremlins start to multiply. Pretty soon I've got enough gremlins on that pain side of the balance to fill this whole room and they're essentially camped out there. And now I'm entering into addicted brain, right? Now I need more of my drug and more potent forms not to feel the pleasure, but just to stop feeling the pain of being in that uh, dopamine deficit state. Um, and this is essentially what drives addictive behavior. It starts out as liking, 
pleasure. And then it just yeah. becomes pure motivation to restore a level balance. And that gets to the second rule of the balance, which is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing substance or behavior, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker, we tilt less, and it gets shorter in duration, but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer, and eventually we can get stuck in that position in this kind of chronic dopamine deficit state, and that's essentially what addiction is. Now, we know that with enough brain plasticity and enough abstinence from our drug of choice, those gremlins will eventually get the memo and say, okay, it's time for us to get off so that homeostasis can be restored. We don't need to be here anymore. But it can take a very long time, depending upon that individual, how long they've been using the particular drug of choice, how old they are, other comorbidities. So that is essentially the way it works. The third rule of the balance is that the balance remembers, and once those gremlins have been created, even after they hop off, they're waiting around in the wings to hop on again. And so that means even with a very minimal exposure to our drug or a similar drug, they will immediately and in hordes hop on the pain side of the balance, which is why people will plunge back into the depths of their addiction, even with a single exposure, even when they've abstained for a long period of time. Yeah, I met a lady yesterday that had been sober for 12 yeah. years and then she relapsed and now she's drinking more than ever. Right. So it's amazing, yeah. isn't it, yeah. after all that time? Yes. Those guys are still waiting. Yes, They're they waiting are. In there. They are. And then when we become dependent on alcohol, sometimes we suffer from anhedonia, don't we? We can't find joy mm -hmm. in everyday right. pleasures anymore. And that's when our dopamine receptors have given up on us and left mm -hmm. town. You've got a nice drawing about that as well. Exactly right. This relentless pursuit of pleasure ultimately leads to the inability to experience any pleasure at all. Not just the inability to experience pleasure from our drug of choice, which is what people describe after heavy chronic use, that really using their drug doesn't doesn't work at all for them. And yet this kind of persistent euphoric recall of what it used to do uh, has them repeating the behavior. And of course, once you're in that dopamine deficit state, you do initially feel better when you're using because at least temporarily you've restored yeah. homeostasis. But ultimately in the long run, what you've done is just add, added more gremlins to the pain side of the balance. A lot of times we'll have patients coming in saying, I'm self-medicating my depression. If you could just treat my depression, I wouldn't drink or I wouldn't smoke or I wouldn't use. But what we always explain is that when you use, you get some relief from your depression or your anxiety or whatever it is. But I would hypothesize to you that really what you're doing is creating the symptoms of depression with persistent use. And the only way to really get you out of that depressed state is to have you stop using for long enough for those gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. And for people who are willing and able to do that, they're always really surprised at how much better they feel. Yeah, yeah I've coached people that are trying to give up alcohol and they've been in therapy for years for their anxiety. Right. And after three, four months, they say to me, 
I think I'm going to stop going to therapy. I feel so right. much better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes they're on meds yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's really... They should always try. Yes. 20 years ago, if a patient came into my office and was using a substance or a behavior in an addictive way and was depressed, the first thing that I would have done 20 years ago was prescribe them an antidepressant. Now the first thing that I do is I ask them to abstain from their drug of choice for four weeks because four weeks is about the average amount of time it takes for those gremlins to start to hop off the pain side of the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. And it's just remarkable to see how much better the majority of people feel just by abstaining. Of course, initially they feel worse, and this is what we always have to warn people When you initially take that reward off the pleasure side of the balance, those gremlins that have been accumulating on the pain side are going to smash down to the side of pain, and you're going to feel worse. And a lot of people end up thinking, oh, no, that's how I'm going to have to be the rest of my life. No, those first 10 to 14 days, that is withdrawal, and that is not your long-term outlook. Just keep going, and eventually you'll get to this place where you really will feel so much better and you you don't have to have your drug in your life to reach some kind of relief. And that's the dopamine fast that right. you recommend. Yes, yeah, exactly. Which is 30 days and then they'll feel worse before they feel. That's right. Yeah. And going back to the anxiety thing, if someone stops for four to six weeks, even if they have got underlying issues like anxiety and depression, at least you can see what's going on, can't you? So that's a great point. So there's research to show that about 80% of people with depression who are using an addictive substance like alcohol will have almost near a resolution of their depressive symptoms after four weeks of abstinence from alcohol. But that means that there's still 20% of folks who won't have resolution, who will still have persistent depressive symptoms. But that's also, as you say, very useful information. That means that, okay, maybe you need to abstain for longer to get the benefits, or maybe there's a co-occurring depressive disorder, which we then need to intervene on. The other thing I would add is that Our treatments, whether it's medicine or psychotherapy, do not work very well when people are in their addiction. We just can't counteract the potency of that dopamine surge that they get from their drug of choice. Our actions become like a drop in an ocean. But if they are in recovery and abstaining from their drug of choice, our interventions, including our medications, end up working much better. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. After reading Dopamine Nation, I started wondering if we're wired to be addicts. Is it just a matter of finding our drug of choice? You with your books yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and your chocolate. Right, right. <laughs> Me with my alcohol. Right. Have we all got something that we yeah, it's a, might get yes, on? It's, it's a great it's a great question. And I'm going to say a qualified yes, in the sense that I think in today's drugified world, we are all vulnerable to the problem of addiction, because because almost all human substances and behaviors, including food, uh, have become drugified, made more potent and reinforcing, more accessible, more bountiful and more novel. So I do think that today we're all vulnerable. I'm a great example, as you point out. I had thought that the addiction gene skipped me in my family. 
And by the way, there isn't a single addiction gene. I use that sort of metaphorically. But it is very clear that some people are more vulnerable to the problem of addiction than others, and that some of that vulnerability, about 50 to 60% of it, is inherited. So if you have a biological parent or grandparent with an alcohol use disorder, you are at four times increased risk compared to the general population of becoming alcoholic yourself, even if raised outside of that alcohol-using home. So there is a potent genetic load. Yeah, myself as an example, I thought because alcohol doesn't really do anything for me and caffeine doesn't wake me up, I just thought whatever this vulnerability is, I must not have it. But the truth is I hadn't yet met my drug of choice, which turned out to be romance novels, which I discovered oddly in midlife rather than in my teenage years. I was off and running, especially once I got a Kindle, which allowed for this sort of 24-7 delivery. So I do think that we're living in a time and place when it's much easier to get addicted and we're all struggling. The other thing that I would add is that from an evolutionary perspective, we really are all evolved to be strivers, right? We evolved in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger so that this pleasure-pain mechanism that ensured that pleasures are fleeting, whatever we have, that's good. We only get feeling good feelings from that for a little while, and then that motivates us to keep searching for the next good thing. And that is a great mechanism in a world of scarcity where we have to keep striving and searching in order to survive. But unfortunately, it's terribly mismatched for the world that we live in now. Yeah, the fact that our brains are exactly the same now as they were when we were in our cave. A little scary, right? Yeah. I really like what you said in the book about us being wired to do hard things to survive. And you recommend, don't you, that we find hard things like cold water swimming. Did Mm -hmm. I see that in the book? Give me some more examples and why. Just go back to this basic pleasure-pain balance metaphor to describe the mechanism of how we process pleasure and pain. It turns out that those gremlins are agnostic to whatever the initial stimulus is. So we talked about how in addiction, if we press on the pleasure side, they'll jump on the pain side. But it turns out if we intentionally press on the pain side, those gremlins will actually go over and hop on the pleasure side, and we will get our dopamine indirectly by doing a hard thing first or paying for it up front. And there's loads of data on this for exercise. There's growing data for this for ice-cold water bath immersion. But there are many other clinical examples of hard things that we can do that don't feel good in the moment but make us feel better afterwards. And again, it's because what we're seeing is a gradual increase of dopamine over the latter half of that activity with dopamine levels remaining elevated in the case of exercise and ice-cold water bath for hours afterwards before returning back down to those baseline levels of dopamine firing without ever going into that dopamine deficit state. So that's a really great way to to get indirectly. Other sort of um, activities that I think fit the bill here are, especially in this day and age, especially since COVID, is just like forcing ourselves to go outside, to interact with people in real life, any kind of effortful engagement over time, maybe meditation, prayer, both of which increase dopamine and are not painful per se, but usually are effortful if we are going to do them in a sustained iterative fashion. Things like chores around the house, things like saying you're sorry or telling the truth. These are all things that I think of as 
hard things that we can do up front that actually give us this kind of boost of dopamine in arrears. Yeah, and I think it makes sense, doesn't mm-hmm. it, when you think about going on the pain side and the, the guys jumping on the other right. side. Yes, that's right. Just Outwitting them, really. Yes, that's right. <laughs> now, we, we obviously need to qualify this, that we're not, we're not recommending things like cutting on yourself. Cutting on ourselves does release endogenous opioids, which then leads to the downstream effect of releasing dopamine. But we develop tolerance almost instantaneously to that, which means that it it doesn't function in a healthy way. Also, cutting is just simply not healthy, right? We're damaging our tissue. The key about this sort of using pain to get pleasure is that it has to be right-sized pain. It can't be too little, but it also can't be too much. If we slam too hard and too fast on that pain side of the balance, we're essentially taking pain and turning it into an intoxicant. This would qualify also for things like jumping out of airplanes or interesting studies that show that people who repeatedly skydive actually become anhedonic over time or have higher rates of anhedonia or depression. It's hard to know cause and effect, but it's very possible and plausible that it's actually the repeated skydiving that's leading them to this kind of dopamine deficit state as there's this sudden surge of neurotransmitters, feel-good neurotransmitters in response to perceived injury that then leaves that individual's brain depleted of those neurotransmitters. Whereas if we do just right-sized pain, the body senses injury and responds by upregulating feel-good neurotransmitters, but not to a degree that exhausts the mechanism. Yeah. So maybe going to the gym a few times a week rather than eating a tub of ice cream. Exactly. It's more about long-term gratification, isn't it, versus the quick fix. I wanted to mention the sense of connection that we have within the recovery community that I'm sure you understand because we understand each other and we're not afraid to be vulnerable. And I wanted to ask you, does that release dopamine or is it oxytocin? Oh, great question. So it releases both. So we know that uh, oxytocin, which is our love hormone that does get released during pair bonding, mate pair bonding, mother-child pair bonding, and also just probably any time we make a deep, intimate social connection, or really any social connection to some degree is going to release oxytocin, which then binds to dopamine-releasing neurons in the reward pathway of the brain and releases dopamine, which is why feeling love feels great and why people can actually get addicted to falling in love. And that's part of love and sex addiction. What I think is happening in peer recovery groups where people are doing the hard thing of sharing and making themselves vulnerable, they're essentially pressing on the pain side of the balance. So they're doing the work up front that then leads to those gremlins hopping on the pleasure side of the balance indirectly. So that's a healthy and adaptive form in general. Uh, of getting your dopamine, plus it contributes to genuine intimacy, right? And genuine support. And all of that is just absolutely key for human thriving. Yeah, and that's why support groups are are such an essential part of recovery for so many of us. Right, and I think we probably need to take a moment and contrast that with the kinds of sort of dopaminergic responses people can get on certain types of social media, which has distilled human connection just down to its most reinforcing properties without requiring any upfront effort. 
And now we've taken social connection, something that's healthy and adaptive, and we essentially turned it into an intoxicant, whether it's a dating app or what have you. And so that's something we have to be wary of. There are ty- certain types of human connections where we have to make the effort up front to solidify those bonds that are healthy, and other types where we're essentially using people as an object and a drug to get our hit, and those are going to be different things. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about the early sobriety blues, as we call it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll give you my example. Reasonably happy in my first few months of sobriety because I felt good. I mm. thought, oh, at last mm. I'm, I'm doing this. It's making a difference and I'm feeling better already. And I felt quite happy and excited. And then at about three or four months, my mood just plummeted Mm. and I felt so low and so depressed. And I knew that I couldn't go back to drinking for health reasons. And I just didn't know what to do. I I felt trapped, really. Mm -hmm. I just sat with it Mm -hmm. because I didn't know what else to do. Sometimes I, I talk about that period with people and and I say it was like a void Mm -hmm. and I sat there with this void and then one day I got an idea to start Tribe Sober (laughs) so then I had to get a website and learn about marketing and start a community and run workshops and I was just busy and it was a big project that I had to have lots of small steps and put them in place and that was great it got the dopamine going, and it's still going eight years mm-hmm. later. Thank you for sharing that. That's really fascinating. One of the hardest challenges in the work that I do is trying to differentiate a depressive state, like a, a clinical depression that needs treatment, however that is conceived, from just normal human suffering. And that can be very difficult to do especially in a culture where we've really essentially vilified suffering in all of its forms and medicalized the experience and said that if you're unhappy, then you must be sick. And if you're sick, then you must need treatment. But the truth of the matter is that life is full of pain. To be alive means to suffer. And these are old truths that, of course, we've known for many centuries, but in our culture today, we've essentially forgotten that. And at the same time, mental illness is real, right? And some people do have a kind of profound mental suffering that is not compatible with life or with thriving. And so they do need help from the latest modern science or whatever they can get help from as a way to alleviate that suffering. So I want to just really emphasize this is not to invalidate the reality of mental illness. Mental illness is real. I'm glad we have the various treatments from medications to electroshock therapy to psychotherapy for people with severe forms of these illnesses. I'm very grateful for those interventions. But at the same time, we have to really recalibrate around what it means to be human. Sitting with the void, as you talked about, is a very important part of the human experience and learning to look into the void and to tolerate the void. And then with time, from that void can emerge bursts of human creativity and wise, informed action that I think is not possible unless we really allow ourselves to be in that place and tolerate that place for some period of time. 
and also know that it's going to pass. For most people, yeah. it almost always passes. We have our ups and downs and we have our seasons and those are entirely natural and they don't last forever. Nothing lasts forever, not even our suffering. I think a lot of us almost expect to be happy all the right. time. And that's why it's tough when we're not. We have a culture telling a, us that. Yeah. yeah. Social media. <laughs> yeah. I heard a neuroscientist say the other day that unhappiness is almost our default state. Yes. And happiness mm -hmm. is a learned skill yeah. and we have to work at it. That makes so a lot of I sense. We're, we're all scared to quit drinking because we feel as if we're going to lose so much. We think, oh, we're going to lose all our friends. We're not going to be able to have fun anymore. Mm -hmm. We're going to lose our ability to relax and to wind down. But in fact, in reality, as I've discovered, we gain so much more. So we try to stress that to people that we're trying to help to get sober and explain that they need to focus on what they're going to gain yeah. and to be excited about this journey. Right. Do you think that's helpful for people? Oh, absolutely. It can't just be about what we're giving up. It has to be about what we're moving toward. And that's why I really like the kind of dopamine fast as a 30-day experiment. Because first of all, 30 days is something that most people can wrap their head around. I'm not going to stop drinking yeah. forever, but I could give it up for 30 days. Because for most people, 30 days is enough to begin to feel better. What's nice about that is that I no longer have to persuade them that there's a better alternative. Because a lot of times people in their addiction, they think I'm either miserable using my drug or I'm miserable without my drug. But no matter how you slice that, I'm miserable. What they cannot see is this third pathway that's a life of not using. That's a really good path with lots of joy and, as you say, lots of other things gained that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So we do a lot of coaching or psychoeducation around that, combined with actual behavioral interventions that allow people to begin to see that for themselves, as you were able to do when you initially felt better. And then after that kind of honeymoon period wears off, if it does, then people have to look deeper into purpose and meaning, making sure we don't frame giving up our drug of choice just as I can't have that thing that I like so much, but rather I'm giving myself something even better, right? I'm doing myself a favor. This is why I think the, the Alcoholics Anonymous concept of alcohol as an allergy is really powerful. Because when we say that we're allergic to whatever our drug is, we've identified the drug as a toxin in our body. And we wouldn't want to poison ourselves, right? So that's, I think, a really nice frame. It's not, oh, I'm giving up this treat or this reward or this thing that I'm actually no longer going to put this poison into my body, this poison that other people can tolerate, but that I really can't because I want to live, right? I don't want to die. So I think those, all those kinds of reframes are really important. Yeah, because so many women, especially, we're doing our yoga and our exercise and eating organic, doing everything that right. we can. I know I was. And then I was drinking a bottle of wine at every right. night so yeah. the thought that all the hard work that you do and then you're poisoning yourself on a daily basis yeah so I'm curious because of what comes up a lot in clinical care is that 
patients really do have to change their friend group or who they're hanging out with because, of course, people normalize their consumption by hanging out with other people who are consuming in high volume. So how did you manage that in your life? Yeah, looking back, I certainly lost some friends. In fact, just today, I've been invited to a a big birthday party of one of my drinking buddies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I am going to go because I'm very secure in my sobriety Mm -hmm. now, but I haven't seen her for ages. I've definitely lost a few people, but I've gained some wonderful friends Mm. through this work Mm -hmm. that I'm doing, some really deep and authentic friendships Mm. that are far more rewarding than the drinking and telling stories kind of friendships. Yeah, yeah, but your friendship group definitely evolves and changes. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because it does in normal life anyway. That's right. Yep. Very well said. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at janet at tribesober.com. That's janet, J-A-N-E-T, at tribesober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. cravings any advice what people can do if they're doing their dopamine fast and and they get a lot of cravings yes sometimes in recent sort of cultural tropes have been to replace one reward with another but i usually counsel against that because the problem with that is the problem of cross addiction that if i'm trying to give up smoking cigarettes and now instead i smoke cannabis i'm very vulnerable to then getting addicted to cannabis Instead, what I recommend is a two-pronged approach. One is to just sit with the craving and watch it come and go. Sometimes we call that urge surfing. And note that it doesn't last forever. So you really slow things down. You really become an observer, a detached observer of your own thoughts and feelings. And you're, you remain curious and non-judgmental. This is often referred to as mindfulness practices but you don't act on those impulses, and then they go away. The other thing, though, that people can do is intentionally press on the pain side of the balance, as we were talking about, and do something that's a little bit more painful than the pain of craving. Because essentially when we're craving, what we have is those gremlins jumping up and down on the pain side of the balance saying, come on, use, right? But if we actually press them down with some exercise or putting our hands or our face in an ice-cold water bath or even something simpler, going outside and forcing ourselves to walk around the block or forcing ourselves to call a friend or call a sponsor or call somebody in our sober tribe, which takes effort and you have to overcome social phobia and I don't feel like doing that. What we're essentially doing is pressing a little bit harder on the pain side of the balance and then convincing some of those gremlins to hop over on the pleasure side. So that's a really nice way to handle cravings. And there's lots of Research, especially with exercise, showing that exercise decreases the symptoms of withdrawal, prevents relapse. So it has all kinds of benefits when it comes to the problems of addiction. Yeah, I like the concept of being curious mm-hmm. about cravings as yeah. well. And we say that when you're going through this in early sobriety, we have to learn to get comfortable with being uncomfortable 
uncomfortable. Yeah, that's right. Because personally, whenever I felt an unpleasant emotion, I, I would just want to chase it away with alcohol. Of course. So now we have to sit through our emotions. But once right. we realize that they're not going to kill us, right. they will pass, yeah. it, it gets easier. The other thing I would add to that is I have a lot of patients who say, I don't actually have cravings. I, I don't know what people are talking about. I have cravings. But cravings are tricky. And one of the ways that cravings can manifest is our brains telling us why it makes complete sense to stop this effort at recovery or abstinence and to use our drug. It just completely invalidates the process of trying to abstain, invalidates recovery says, this is so stupid, you should just use, who cares, come on, everybody else is using. That's craving, because what happens in response to craving is that our brains, which are natural storytelling machines, come up with a million and one stories uh, to try to persuade us to use. So uh, when folks say, I don't have craving, I said, do you have moments where you say to yourself, this is stupid, I don't need to keep doing this? They say, oh yeah, definitely. I'm like, okay. And that's at odds with all the reasons that you told me why you wanted to stop. So we have these two things in juxtaposition, and I would call that little voice in your head it's telling you that, that the effort to abstain is not important, is craving. Yeah, interesting, yeah. If people have been drinking for years or decades, have they rewired their brains? Short answer, yes both to drinking for decades and also abstaining for decades. So the work of my colleague here at Stanford, Edie Sullivan, has shown, has looked at the brains of people who get into recovery from severe alcohol addiction. And she's been able to show that the parts that have been damaged by the addiction process probably remain damaged forever. They, to some extent, never totally heal. But that people who get into sustained recovery develop new neural pathways that route around those damaged areas. So that means that the work of recovery is also long-lasting. And so when people relapse, and of course they're despairing when they realize, I said, but you know what, you haven't lost those years of recovery and abstinence. Those are also still in your brain, and you can get back there and recapture that. Yeah, oh, that's very encouraging, yeah. isn't it, for people that have relapsed, yeah. I think. Yeah, because there's been so much learning going yes, on during exactly. that recovery period. Exactly. Yeah. And, the, and then yeah. what is learning but the creation of new neural networks and new you know, synapses, synaptic connections. The subtitle of your book is Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. So I wanted to ask you if we could end with some tips from you on finding that balance. Yeah, so I, I always like to emphasize that finding the balance is different today than it was hundreds or thousands of years ago when we lived in a world of much less abundance and many fewer drugs. Today, as I said, almost everything has become more drugified, even behaviors that we typically associate with healthful activity. Like we've been talking a lot about exercise and how exercise is healthy, but exercise too has become drugified with all of the machines and the social media and the leaderboards and the counting and all of this. We have people who get addicted to exercise. It's rare, but we do see it. So it's a very difficult world in which to maintain balance. But what I recommend is that once you have become aware of or identified what your drug of choice is, and it may be something as ordinary as sugar, then what I recommend is abstain, maintain, and seek out pain. 
we abstain in order to reset healthy reward pathways and restore baseline levels of dopamine firing. We maintain by acknowledging that we live in a drugified world where these drugs will literally chase us down if we don't use what I call self-binding strategies to create both literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we're not constantly being triggered and invited to consume. And then finally, seek out pain is this idea of intentionally doing things that are hard because that way we get our dopamine indirectly by paying for it up front. Just generally by doing things that are hard, I think we acknowledge that life was meant to be, to some extent, hard, and hardship is our inheritance. And so if we have a life that's too easy, we're going to be out of balance. We have to create kind of the yep. right amount of friction. And as you very nicely put it, sitting with the void, and that's part of the hard part of life. Because that makes me think of often you read about the sons and daughters are very rich people yeah. because they've had a very easy life right. and they often lose their oh, way, yeah. don't they, these kind of children. Yes, that's very true. So, uh, that's very true. We need. Yes, it's like a bimodal distribution. Extreme poverty is a risk factor for addiction, yeah. but extreme wealth yeah. is probably a risk factor as well. How can people find out more about you, Anna? Obviously, your book. Yeah. <laughs> You've written other books, I yes, think. Yes, I wrote you? a book about the opioid epidemic called The Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. And I've written a lot in the medical literature, in peer-reviewed medical journals, and other lay publications. I'm not on social media because it's something that I don't think I would be able to consume in moderation, so I just simply opt out. Uh, but probably learning about me, probably reading my book is the best bet. Thank you so much for the share, Anna, and for your valuable insights. Let's pull out some key points. Anna began by defining dopamine for us. It's a neurotransmitter which is central to pleasure, reward, and motivation, and it plays a crucial role in addiction. One of the most exciting findings in neuroscience is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a seesaw or a balance. And in Anna's book, Dopamine Nation, you'll find some great illustrations which demonstrate that pleasure-pain balance and which feature little pain gremlins hopping on and off the seesaw, depending on your behavior. There are three rules governing this balance. Rule number one, the brain will always seek homeostasis as the neutral position. Rule number two, repeated exposure to alcohol can result in a chronic dopamine deficit, which is in fact the definition of addiction. And rule number three, the brain remembers addictive behaviours, which means that a single exposure can result in relapse. And that's why moderation never works once we've crossed the line into dependence. To quit drinking, Anna recommends beginning with a dopamine fast, a 30-day period of abstaining, which will allow the brain to restore homeostasis. The first 10 to 14 days will be spent in withdrawal, so they will be difficult days. But that difficult stage is going to pass, so the key is to keep going, 
rather than stopping and starting, which just means doing that really difficult bit again and again. Anna explained that genetic vulnerability plays a role in addiction. So if you have an alcoholic parent, you're four times as likely to develop a dependence. But remember that genetics may be the gun, but your lifestyle is the trigger. You can break that generational pattern. Our brains were wired for survival in a world of scarcity, but they don't fit quite so well in this modern world of abundance. And that's why so many people have become addicted to one thing or another. Anna recommends engaging in what she calls hard things, like exercise or cold water immersion, which can indirectly increase dopamine levels and provide a sense of long-lasting reward. Regular gym sessions and cold water swimming will keep those feel-good neurotransmitters triggered for hours after the event. I asked Anna why she thought support groups worked so well, and she explained that the genuine connections in recovery communities release both dopamine and oxytocin. So if you're looking for a recovery community to keep your dopamine flowing as you tackle this journey, then just go to tribesober.com and click on Join Our Tribe. We also discussed the early sobriety blues, that low mood that can strike a few months into sobriety. I certainly went through a period of feeling very low and uninspired in early sobriety. Without the drinking, I had plenty of time on my hands, but no idea what to do with it. A period I referred to as the void. Anna says that tolerating the void is an important part of the human experience and it can lead to bursts of creativity. That certainly happened in my case, and I used my creativity to set up Tribe Sober. We now advise tribe members to get a project if they get the early sobriety blues, something to keep the mind busy and engaged, rather than just sitting around waiting for happiness to strike. In fact, we discuss the unrealistic societal expectations to be happy all the time. These expectations can lead to people believing that they are sick if they're not happy all the time. This reminded me of my conversation with neuroscientist Stacey Danford, who believes that unhappiness is our default and that happiness is actually a learned skill. I'll put a link to that podcast in the show notes. As Anna said, we have to recognise that life is full of pain and to be alive means that sometimes we have to suffer. That makes me think of my favourite quote by Viktor Frankl. Life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, as Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Adler taught, but it's a quest for meaning. The greatest task for any person is to find meaning in their life. And we're so much more likely to find meaning if we're living an alcohol-free lifestyle. I mentioned that at Tribe Sober, we try to focus on what we gain in recovery rather than what we lose. It's a reframe that Anna agreed is essential for success. One of her tips for managing cravings was to intentionally engage in activities that press on the pain side of the balance. 
back to doing those hard things. It made me think of one of our members who used to take a cold shower every time she got a craving. I used to think that was a bit strange, but in fact she was doing exactly the right thing, instinctively. Those of us that have drunk heavily for decades may have damaged parts of our brains, but in recovery we are rewiring the brain, so new neural pathways are developing around those areas. And we agreed that a relapse is not the end of the world, as so much learning will have taken place during the recovery period. The key, of course, is to get right back on track as quickly as possible and continue the learning. To learn more about Dr. Anna Lemke, you can read her book, Dopamine Nation, and explore her other publications, including The Drug Dealer, MD. So let me finish by reading out a message from tribe member Nancy. It really is surprising how long we cover up for our drinking, as so few friends understand, and it feels like there's nowhere to turn to. For me, I just didn't know where to get help. AA never appealed to me, nor did rehab, so I was left bereft, bobbing around in the ocean in a sea of loneliness. Tribe Sober has been such a lifeline for the shipwreck I was lucky enough to survive. How many more of us are out there? We really need to raise awareness and speak up when we feel stronger to do so. I'm so proud that I'm on the bus with this amazing tribe. Oh, thank you, Nancy. I'm so glad you decided to join us. So if you're feeling stranded in that sea of loneliness that Nancy mentions, please know that there is somewhere to turn. Somewhere you'll find only kindness, support and encouragement. Just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. We're here for you. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards. And that's just for starters. So go to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.